This message by Sam Shin, entitled, We Do Not Lose Heart, was recorded at Wellspring Church on June 16, 2019. The text for this message is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but... By the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Before we begin today's message, I wanted to announce a sermon series for the summer. And I've been praying about this for a while and thinking about it and decided to pull the trigger. And so we're going to do a 10-week summer series on heaven. So... I'm calling it the summer, a summer in heaven. And, uh, for all of you who have all sorts of questions, I, I really posed this to a couple people today. I said, I, I would imagine that almost everyone in this room has at least one misperception or misidea of what heaven is or what it's about or what we're going to do there or who's there or why are we there. So my hope is that For these next 10 weeks, we'll be able to cover this together and see through Scripture what the Bible says about heaven and actually the critical implications that it has for all of us as we live here on earth today. And I think we actually have many, many implications that you will see hopefully through this time. Secondly is that today is Father's Day. And I think I said this when I was giving the Mother's Day message, is that I would do the same for fathers. And I was talking to someone about this, and they were saying, you know, Mother's Day in the church so often, whenever someone preaches about Mother's Day, it's always encouraging. It's always kind-hearted, comforting. When it comes to fathers, it's always, you guys have to ship up and just get things together, get your act together. So I want to say that not going to give that type of message for Father's Day. Instead... I'm going to take what Paul writes here to the church. So this text really is for everyone. It's not just for fathers, but I will apply it to fathers. Specifically, the idea of do not lose heart. Press on. Don't give up the fight of faith. And we see what Paul says and why Paul says this in these two verses. I'm going to talk first of all about why Paul doesn't lose heart. And then secondly, how do we not lose heart? And Paul gives two ways that we do not lose heart. First is, renounce the veneer of apparent piety. That's in verse 2. And the second is, embrace God's word as truth. We must live by that truth. So, we're going to look first at why Paul doesn't lose heart himself. We see this specifically in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God... We do not lose heart. And one key word in that verse that helps us to understand why Paul doesn't lose heart is the word therefore. Therefore is a transitional word in the Bible or in any type of logic. And what it says is that what the statement that follows is supported by the statement that is before. And to understand why we do not lose heart, we have to go back to chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says that we are ministers of a new covenant. 
And that idea is so essential to understanding why Paul doesn't lose heart. Meaning, before Paul was a minister of an old covenant, he was a partaker of an old system, of an old way of thinking. That is, he had a, a particular, particular view of God and how he should be worshipped and obeyed and followed. And something happened in his life, and we know, if you read the Bible, we know in Acts chapter 9, what happened was he encountered Christ. But before he encountered Christ, dramatically, on his road to Damascus, he actually had a very old way of thinking. And that old way dictated how he was going to view life, what it meant to obey God, how it meant to follow him and to worship him. And for Paul, who was a Jew, he believed that Jews inherited a promise from God. They were his people. That's what the whole Old Testament, specifically the first five books of the Bible, the Mosaic Law was all about, is that God set up a system of laws and when you obeyed that system of laws, you actually obeyed God and you followed him and you were going to be blessed. Very logical, practical. The problem was that the law was not the problem, but the human heart was the problem. As Paul and others like him and Pharisees and Sadducees and Jews and religious Jews tried to obey the law to follow what God had dictated for them to follow, they started getting proud and they started coming up with their own regulations of how you obey God. So they took a, a standard such as keep the Sabbath holy, and they began to put all sorts of different rules and regulations on top of that standard. That's sort of how things work, is that you become a little bit more, not just legalistic, but self-righteous about your legalism. It's hard not to take the law legalistically. I mean, that's almost... A, it almost speaks for itself. But I think this happens more often than not. And I'll specifically apply this to fathers. For example, I think for many of us fathers, we want most of all to see our families thrive and prosper. I think every father, if I were to ask them and say, do you want your family to thrive and prosper? Most would say, yes, I do. The question would remain of how does this happen? How do you get your family to thrive and prosper? I think without even communicating it this way, most might say, at least, they might not say it, but they think it, we think it, is they just need to listen to me. That's how we get the family to thrive and prosper. Specifically, children. Children need to obey their father. And... Believers of Jesus, sort of how we are prone to think of authority. The father is the head of the home, especially over children, and there to be listeners of to that authority. And when you do that, you're obeying God. When you listen to that from a biblical framework, it doesn't sound wrong, and it's not. Here's the challenge with most ideas about the understanding of how we view the law is that the law in and of itself is not wrong. That children should listen to their father. A father also might say, a Christian father might say, hey, obey God, obey me because God is watching you. And God wants you to obey. 
Is that wrong? Is that a wrong idea? Absolutely not. It's There's a truth to that. Another is that God wants them to behave and to obey. That's also a right response. All of these are true statements. And when we think on those terms, the next question that you might think about is, is this, does this actually work? Do children obey based on a father's authority and the enforcement of that authority through perhaps punishment or fear? It absolutely works. You can actually force your children to behave a certain way if you level a certain amount of fear, authority, and discipline and punishment. But what that cannot do is change a person's heart. So a child can actually follow and listen and obey and do everything right. But we all know that in the heart, you can't force someone to obey in their heart. Not really. Paul Tripp gives the example of the time that he sort of illustrates it by someone taking, going to the supermarket and finding the most delicious apples. And you go and you're growing this apple tree in your backyard, but the apple tree is not growing well. The tree looks like it's flourishing, but the apples themselves are terrible because something in the core of that tree is not healthy. And so it has no fruit. And so what you decide to do is you go to the supermarket, you buy these delicious apples, you take them, and you start stapling them to the tree. And then you look at that tree and you think, my apple tree is so delicious, it's so good. But we all know that's a sham. Because regardless of how the apples look, unless it truly grows from the base of that tree, from the core of that tree, well and healthily, then that tree is really rotten, ultimately. And this is the problem with this idea of what Paul is saying is essentially what he later describes in chapter 3, verse 7, the very next verse. He says, this is a ministry of death. You can actually force a certain type of behavioral pattern on a child. But what you cannot do is change their heart. You can actually get them to obey and to listen and to be quiet, to be polite, to say thank you, please, and dress a certain way. But that's only putting apples, stapling apples on a tree. It doesn't change the heart. And so Paul describes this, this type of life and paradigm and and worldview as a ministry of death. It's something that after he turned to Christ, he came to realize, I've been doing it all wrong. The law was glorious, but the law was intended to show the world that we actually need God. We need a savior. We can't keep the law perfectly. Because James describes it like this in James 2.10. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point becomes guilty of it all. So the Bible tells us we can never keep the standards of the whole law. It becomes a curse to us, ultimately. The more you try to obey the law perfectly, the more misery you experience. And the more we try to apply that law to other people, we create laws and rules and patterns, and we expect certain types of behavioral results, effects, 
ultimately that doesn't lead to a changed heart. It just leads perhaps to a changed behavior, but that doesn't do anything in the long run. And Paul describes it as a curse, as a death. It is no wonder then that we judge others, especially our loved ones, on standards that we cannot keep. And for all of us who are fathers, it is a death to us and to those around us. When we place standards on our own family members, our children, our wife, and we ourselves, if we are honest with ourselves, and I'm not talking about our external behavior, but internally in our hearts, we can't keep that same standard. We never can. It just falls short. Eventually, it will. And what happens then is when we fall short of that, alienation, anger, irritability, frustration. It truly is a death. This type of life is why Paul says you will lose heart. If you live the life that thinks that people around me, those closest to me, must live up to my standards, and if they don't, then they will be punished. Whatever that looks like, whatever that punishment looks like, even if it's the silent treatment, or just simply brewing and stewing in the corner. Living like that alone never brings joy, not to yourself and not to the people around us. Our efforts also will not produce what we want. And so here's a problem with this scenario is that we, we start thinking so easily that if I could simply do something, I could change myself and the people around me. And let me say that there is no parenting book or book on how to be a great father or mothers and wives. If you have this one book, you say, if my husband just reads this book, they will be forever changed. And you give that book and you see it sitting in the corner. But even if they read it, be careful because I don't think you're going to see the change you think you could see. Or if you do see change, maybe it's short-lived. Perhaps we think that it's going to take an activity. If, my, if, if we only were more engaged, and maybe I could come up here and say, hey, you need to be more involved with your children. Take your kids and throw the ball with them more. Or take your daughter to a father and daughter dance. If you do that, everything will be great. Or go on vacation together. See, all of these things can impact behavior. It has short-term solutions. It can actually cause someone to have a momentary affection towards you. But it will not change a person's heart towards you. It can't. What Paul says is that there's a better way. And the better way is verse 1 of chapter two, uh, chapter 4. It's It says this, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Look at Paul's answer to how we keep our hearts together before one another and before the Lord. It's the mercy of God. That's it. There's no other solution. There's nothing you can do that makes you well enough to actually not lose heart. And so it has to be God intervening despite our weaknesses and failures. Again, do not mistake this to be simply you do nothing. 
But it's all about the motivation of what you do and why you do something. If it's, I need to be a good father and here are all the different steps and patterns, or I want my husband to be a better father and so they need to have family worship and they need to read the Bible more and have quiet time more and they need to be engaged more with the kids. And they need to ask good questions and have great conversations. All of those things are valuable. But if you expect those things to change that person's heart, which will impact the lives of children, getting that backwards actually does grave damage. And it actually keeps you as a husband, father, you as someone who is trying, if you try to by works and law and merit and effort, to actually make a difference in your children's lives, you actually won't do that at all. Paul calls it again a ministry of death. It has to be an internal change rooted by God through His Spirit doing the work of changing you. It is a mercy. Mercy means someone outside of you comes in, breaks through the darkness, radically transforms and gives you new eyes to see and to be able to renew and to restore. Here, God is the one who is proactive. And the whole Bible tells the story of how this came to be. This is why we so regularly talk about the work of Christ, the, the finished work of Christ on the cross, the fact that Jesus gave his atoning life, he atoned our sins, he intervened despite us, we did nothing to deserve it. He just did it. And our only hope is to place our faith in that truth, in that reality. From that comes all the efforts, the fruits that flow from that truth. And it is in the overturning of the brokenness, of that brokenness that we all have through the work of God the Son that is able to free us from guilt, and shame, and legalism, and false methodologies. And it will do that forever and ever. It's again what we're going to talk about for the next ten weeks. Why the forever is so critical for the now. The gospel is God's great mercy, and it is the only means and motivator upon which we can keep from not losing heart. If you get this wrong, you will lose heart. If you get this right regardless of the circumstances that should cause one to lose heart, you will not lose heart. So, what does this look like practically then? How do we do this? How do we not lose heart? Paul doesn't leave us just by simply saying, here's what I've experienced. He says, here's what you need to do. And that's always good news for us because it does help us. If you understand that God has done the work, he's been faithful, then here's how you struggle and strive to not lose heart in light of that truth. First, um, one of my professors described it this way in, in, in a commentary that he wrote on this um, book. He says, the person who does not lose heart renounces the veneer of apparent piety. So I borrowed that from him. He renounces the veneer of apparent piety. Let's look at verse 2. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. That has to be in the context of everything he's spoken about in chapter 3, which is that the old covenant was good only to the extent that it showed us our need for a savior. The law has a purpose. 
that we can't fulfill it and that we need Christ. But the problem is when you try to think that the law itself is the Savior. And the way that we do that and the way that Pharisees did that and we do that is by having this veneer of apparent piety. It's disgraceful. Paul describes it that way. It is underhanded. It's underhanded because it's absolutely critical. It's a, it's the person who's a liar, who is deceptive. In their hearts, they are no different than the people that they're judging or angry towards or unforgiving towards. But yet, out externally, they look fine. They look moral. They, they say certain words that seem right and good. And this is a critical message for us as fathers. Jesus describes this person as a whitewashed tomb. Um, I was on vacation and one of our relatives died while we were there. And so we happened to go to a, a funeral while I was on vacation. And we actually went to the burial site. And every time you go to those burial sites, it's always sobering and humbling. But if you can imagine regardless of how beautiful a tomb is. And a tomb can look quite beautiful, extravagant, actually. But eventually, that body will decay there. And it will be not be a sight to behold. It will be a horrific sight. And that's what Jesus says is this person. The person who externally looks beautiful, but internally is a horrific, decaying, decomposing body. It's the heart and the message for us, especially in an Instagram society, you might say, where we love posing the picture of how beautiful our family is, but ex externally everything looks so beautiful, but internally there is decaying, de decomposing corruption in our family. The, the heart of the family is broken. And for fathers... I want to say that as important as it is for you to be engaged in your family, in your children's lives, um, to be taking them to sporting events and to be uh, taking them on vacations and you know spending time with them, doing all these fun things, there can be a projection of wellness. But the veneer is just that, a veneer. Christians are most guilty, perhaps, of this veneer because we also have what are clearly biblical, scriptural ideas of faithfulness. Reading the Bible, praying, going to church, serving, being in Christian leadership. And the greatest danger is that we, we can so easily think that on the face of it, those things somehow make us righteous. But we go home and perhaps we're cranky and angry and irritable and self-centered that is in every way what Paul calls the disgraceful, underhanded person. This person has to renounce this idea. The person who refuses to renounce it will lose heart. You will lose heart for God and for the people around you. It, you cannot sustain that. And it actually causes simply death around you. Death, not always literally, but Death in, in a person's identity, whether in our children's lives, fear and stress and anxiety, 
It is the essence of the Old Covenant when we make the Old Covenant the Savior. Because it keeps us from getting to the bottom of our hearts, which is we need Christ. Peter describes this this way, the same idea in 1 Peter 5, 6-7. Young men, and Peter gives advice as an aging apostle, as a father. You know, he's a father. He's a spiritual father. And that's why this text is not just about literal physical fathers, but as well for spiritual fathers. And many of us are that. And he's saying, young men, those who are going to be fathers, those who are fathers spiritually and physically, in the same way, submit yourselves to your elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand so that in due time he may exalt you. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Look at what's happening according to Peter. When you prop yourself up and you put on the veneer of godliness and religion without humility, a broken spirit, a contrite heart, as, as David says in Psalm 51, when you put on the veneer of strength and power without recognizing you actually need Jesus desperately, who opposes you in that process? God opposes you. It should not be a wonder to us that you lose heart when you're trying to put on a veneer of strength and power and all things are together and you have the particular career path and just because you have that job and you provide for your family that you're strong and you do everything well. That person loses heart for God and for his family. It's because when you're in that place, according to what Peter says, God opposes you. He is actively engaged in making sure that you will be humbled one day. But for the person who recognizes, oh, I, this is a struggle. I, it's not a struggle just because of the people around me. They're not in, turn, in and of themselves the main struggle. It's what they release in me myself, my own pride, my rebellion against God to want to follow him, my refusal to yield to the work, the, the saving work of Christ in my life. And when we do that, God's promise here, what Peter says is, under God's mighty hand, he's going to exalt you. And what is the promise then that we can do? We can cast anxiety on him. We can actually go to him and say, Lord, I need your help. This should be the anthem of all fathers. It should be, I need God's help. But it starts with humility and then casting your cares. And what is God's promise? He cares for you. He will, he will lift you up. My family and I were walking together recently and we noticed a baby bird that had fallen from a nest. There was a really large wall. So there was a tree, an overhanging tree. There was a large wall, and this baby bird was on the floor and wasn't so young that it couldn't fly, but it could only fly to about one-third of the way up the wall. And we looked at the situation. You could see the mother, and the mother was just chirping. Mother, father, I don't know, but it was chirping away and was nervous, obviously, a sense of desperation. And so one of my daughters went over there to try to pick up the bird to lift it up to the mother. But as she kept on going over, 
the bird would run away because she was scared. The baby bird was scared. And no matter how much we tried, we couldn't help it because it would run away. And eventually we had to just, we decided to leave it alone. I don't know if it was ever rescued. But when I think of that scenario, I think of the idea that we, we as people, in this instance as fathers, we try to put up this veneer thinking that if we could just save ourselves, if we could just do it ourselves, everything will be okay. But the more we do that and the more we refuse God's rescue of us, we actually go down a dark spiral that scripture reminds us leads ultimately to death. The yielding of our hearts to God, which is so hard as men, as fathers, it's hard to yield our hearts because we are so prone to think that it's all about my efforts and strength and power that is going to protect my family, going to provide for them for myself with all that I have. And what that does is it keeps us from actually being truly humble. What does humility do in this context? It uh, it's empowers us to actually ask for forgiveness, sometimes from our wife, sometimes from our children. And I have to say that that has to be one of the most difficult acts as a father is to ask for forgiveness from your own children. I was listening to a seminar, my wife and, I, and our family was this um, couple of weeks ago, on uh, from a couple that have been, missionary couple that have been married for 37 years. They had eight children. And they were giving a talk on parenting. And the father was speaking and he said himself how difficult it was to ask forgiveness from their own children, but how important it was. And he had shared a story where he had just recently asked for forgiveness for something that he felt he had done decades ago. Now his, his children are all grown, and he's still asking for forgiveness from his children. And you could see the impact that that makes on that child. The story he shared is they were weeping together because obviously in those children's hearts, they were impacted by their father's even unintended behaviors that led to those children feeling something. And there is a humility that takes place in that fact. It's not an easy thing. I wonder how many of us even have heard, I'm sorry, from your own parents. How many of you have heard that from your own parents? I'm seeing about one twentieth. How many of you have raised your hand? I'm very curious. How many of you have heard, I'm sorry, from your father? Not your mother, your father. Wow. Still about a third of the people in this room. Why has only one third of us heard, I'm sorry, from your father? Let me ask you, is it because your father never did anything wrong against you? Probably not. It's because of pride. And that pride... You might say to yourself, well, I'm okay. You know, that was a long time ago. They're old now and I could forgive them. It's no big deal. But you don't know, and I think we all don't realize how much that shapes us. 
our worldview, our mindset, the way that we're parenting our own children. When we are unable, because of our own pride, to even recognize our own sins against our own children, our own wives, it does damage. And rightfully so, because God opposes you in that moment. It's hard to ask for forgiveness. It's hard to do things that are uncomfortable. So here's another instance where to, for some of us, we might say, well, I'm, I'm not a talkative person. But what I have found out in, in the teen years in raising teenagers is you better be a talkative person. <laughs> you have to have a million conversations with your kids and it's never ending. And it's not so easy. It takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of work. And some of us are not talkative. And you might say, well, my personality is I never talk anyway. And so maybe your wife is saying, I wish you would talk more. Wish you would be more conversant. You might say, but God made me this way, so you can't expect that. If you read Peter, you can't say that. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. There's a promise. Remember the promise. He's going to lift you up. But it takes our humbling. We have to be able to do things that are uncomfortable for us. And when we do that, and if it's hard, then the, what, are you, what are you supposed to do? Cast your cares. He cares for you. He's going to hear you. He's going to answer you. But don't just simply say, well, that's my personality. Well, I'm too busy. Or life is hard and... My kids don't even listen anyway, so what's the big deal? Fathers, if you do not want to lose heart and you don't want the people around you to lose heart, then listen to his word. Trust it. Believe it to be true. And he will answer you. Secondly is, we have to embrace God's word as truth to live by. Paul writes in verse 2, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. In chapter 2, verse 17, Paul calls these people who are religious leaders, people who Paul would have associated with prior to the Damascus Road. They had grown up learning the Torah and learning and memorizing all of Moses' law, and yet in chapter 2, verse 17, he calls them peddlers of God's word. They know God's word, but they shape it to fit their own benefit, their own patterns. They use it as a burden to people rather than that which uplifts. And cults do this. So you might say, boy, we've got to make sure that we guard our families against cults. Absolutely, yes. So... Know God's word, read it, study it, memorize it, talk about it. Um, I hope you do that. And if you have to be the one. So fathers, you are the prime gateway upon which your family receives God's word. And so when you go on vacation, you decide to go to a church. Is it just, let me take my finger and put it on some random church, or is it, I'm going to look at their statement of faith and what they teach and listen to, and that's the church we're going to go to. If you're thinking about this church as your church and you're new, I hope you're evaluating evaluating it based on what's being taught, what we believe. 
But that comes with you learning yourself and you desiring and growing in that. It's essential. So, yes, it keeps us from cults. And it's important to do that. But I don't think Paul's just talking about cults here. He's saying it's possible that you, as someone who believes God's word or knows it somewhat, can actually tamper with it. And the way we tamper with God's word is that we take God's word and we make it fit our own paradigms for what's comfortable for us. For example, maybe you read a text that says, let there not be even a hint of sexual morality. But yet, you're flipping through Netflix and you're on a, I don't know, let's say you're watching Game of Thrones. You're watching it, nudity scene comes in. And in your mind, it's, well, you know what? That's historical. You know, I'll be okay because it's history, actually. When Paul says this, do we tamper? Are we cunning? Because that's exactly what Satan said to the uh, to Eve. Did God really say in chapter 3, verse 1, we're no less guilty of tampering with God's word when we are utilizing different circumstances and situations to fit our patterns, to make us feel more comfortable. Maybe we read Ephesians 5 and it says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. But yet, we're angry, we're frustrated with those around us. We read that text and we say, yeah, but it doesn't mean it literally. We then adapt God's word to how we feel. This is the tamperer of God's word, the peddler, the person who is cunning with it. And it is satanic. You know, we don't like hearing, well, are you saying fathers and people can be satanic? Absolutely. If we are a people who are distorting God's word, you have to first know God's word. You have to actually believe it. And then you have to apply it. And you have to apply it consistently in all circumstances. And when it doesn't fit, and when it goes against what we believe or what we're experiencing, we need to decide for ourselves, is it God's word that needs to change? Or is it that I need to change? Because once I start saying, well, no, I'm going to adapt the Bible or what Jesus says to fit what I feel, what's comfortable for me, then we are doing Satan's bidding. You will lose heart then if you become cunning with God's word. Eventually you will grow tired. You'll grow tired of God. We should not be surprised when Jesus and the gospel is not glorious. When coming to Sunday is dragging your feet. When your family is turning away from him. When your adult children eventually are not walking with him at all. We should not be surprised that that's happening when we ourselves are accommodating all of what we're experiencing to fit the patterns of God's word. I hope there's a change. And that change is that we see the centrality and the life-giving benefit of knowing all about who God is. A couple of weeks ago, David Pallison, who was an author, biblical counselor, he died in his battle against pancreatic cancer. Tim Keller said of David Pallison, David put the biblical teaching about the deceitfulness of the heart 
back into the center of biblical counseling. Counseling before David Powelson, one of David Powelson's strongest uh, impacts and most profitable impacts to biblical counseling was the idea of idolatry. He's, he wrote a very significant article on idolatry. And he's helped so many people, especially in the area of self-worship. I was reading Ray Ortland, who's a pastor in uh, Kentucky in Nashville. And he was describing how David Powelson made a difference in his life. And I want to read this for you. He says, in the midst of his most darkest times, he says, I love, uh, um, we spent a day together in 2007 for Jenny, who is his wife, and me, a catastrophic disaster of a year. David Powelson was an oasis of calm, gentleness, and reasonableness amid a swirl of accusations, loss, and heartbreak. David with Nan, who is David Powelson's wife, kept our hope alive. One suggestion David made became so significant that I have passed it along to many others since then. I can't remember his exact words, but it went something like this. Ray and Jenny, you are suffering, and it isn't going to get better anytime soon. So here's an idea. Ask the Lord for a verse of scripture, a promise in the Bible to help you get through this. And when that verse jumps off the page into your heart, make it the theme of your life while you slog your way forward. However dark the nighttime sky might be, you can always look up at the North Star promise. Get your bearings again and keep going. But wallpaper your reality with the word of God. So we did. We asked the Lord to personalize to us some biblical encouragement of his own choosing. And he did. Jenny was reading 1 Peter 5 soon thereafter. And verse 10 was a direct hit in the best of ways. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And we seized that verse. We memorized 1 Peter 5.10. We discussed it. We prayed over it. Jenny wrote it out on three by five cards and taped them to the inside of the kitchen cupboards so that every time she went to get a glass or a plate, there was 1 Peter 5.10. I wrote it out and stuck it onto the visor in my truck, so that at a red light I could look up and be strengthened by 1 Peter 5.10. We never let that verse out of our sight, and in ways we could not have imagined, God has proven faithful to his promise. To this day, whenever Jenny and I experience some restoring, confirming, strengthening, or establishing mercy, we look at one another and say, 1 Peter 5.10. In fact, we did so just yesterday. That word from above didn't merely help us cope, it redefined how we experience reality. It kept me in the ministry. When I think of what it means to have God's word at the center, it's not just, hey, read the Bible, uh, memorize it. And at that, I love what David Powelson gave as a suggestion to Ray Ortland, which is write it down and put it all over the place on your computer, next to your bed, and pray over it and say, Lord, we are struggling. We need help. We can cast our anxieties on him and he cares for us. And the way he most cares for us is he reminds us of the truth. And that truth, we have to literally physically put it everywhere because like you, I am a forgetter. And I need to remind me of God's word. My daughter Elizabeth, she's learning how to be a coxswain on a rowing team. And in a rowing team, 
there is one person who steers the boat out of an eight-person crew. And the one thing that is hard about steering is that it's hard to keep that boat on track because the water is the water and it's hard to keep it straight. And so what instructors say is the way to keep that boat on track is you have to find some sort of landmark, a tree, a buoy, a bridge, something, a ripple of water that you see in the distance to keep that in view. And so as you keep that in view, as you're steering, you can head on straight. God's word is that landmark for us to make sure we do not lose heart. He didn't just give the, the give his word to us to make us feel the burden of reading it. He gave it to us to help us, to guide us, to protect us, to help us long for him and to understand that we're made for him. And so fathers, when you are most weary, I guarantee you ESPN will not help you in that time. It will help you in the moment, maybe, until the Warriors lose and two people get deeply injured or there's a big trade or whatever it might be. You know, there has to be more than that. It has to be more than having a vacation or a father-daughter dance or helping your child shoot baskets or hit a ball far or helping them on a test or paying for their SAT classes or whatever it might be. It has to be God's word. That's what sustains you to make sure that in fathering a child to go to the place where they're created to be. Because again, we'll talk about for the next 10 weeks. I hope you will see, as I have, how precious heaven is. And you have to live with that in view. We cannot change ourselves. It's the message of today. We cannot become better fathers and Christians and husbands and men and friends unless we realize that our best efforts will fall short. We need the mercy of God. And he's given us his son, his word, and everything we need to follow him. And when we understand that, we can live joyously, bountifully, abundantly, making sure that we never lose heart. Let's pray together. Let me pray for you, um, especially for the fathers in our church, physical fathers and spiritual fathers. Some of you are discipling people. So in that way, you are mothers and fathers. Whether you have physical children or not, you are fathers. You are mothers. And then some of you are physical fathers. And maybe you've grown weary and you've grown tired. And if that's you, well, I pray that, and I, I pray that you would hear the work of what Jesus did for you on this cross and the word that points you to that reality so that you no longer live and try to put up a veneer of spirituality or of even looking like a successful or someone who is actually a good father. You'll never be good enough. That's why Jesus gave his life for you. And so, Lord, I pray for the men of our church I pray, O oh God, that you would help them to see that, that we can know, that we can see striving and know that you are God. You've shown mercy. You've given us mercy. And you've made that so clear in the gospel of Christ. Your own son 
was sent to this world to die on a cross, to rise again from the grave, to defeat death once and for all, so that we might be sons. And we can cry out to you, Abba, Father. May our core identity, O Lord, be that we are sons, first and foremost. Only from that truth will we be able to be fathers, rightly so. Only from that truth will we not lose heart. So be glorified this day, O Lord, as we take part in this visual picture of that reality. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.